0: Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk.
1: You're welcome along to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact regarding last week's programme, focusing on the issue of domestic violence and why there's a rise in sex crimes here in Ireland. You can still listen back to the podcast on our website at Newstalk.com, or you can also download the Go Loud app as well. And you can get in contact with us today by emailing Between the Lines at Newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself, at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, it's Mental Health Week. We are going to be discussing the options and the support networks available to people and also the pathway to care. To discuss, we're joined in studio by the uh, first part of our panel today, who includes Cindy O'Connor, the director of Athena, the Academy for Mental Health and Wellbeing in Ireland. And Cindy is also previously well known for her time, of course, and her involvement with Pieta House for quite a number of years. Just first of all, Cindy, can can you just put into context for us um, How we do here in Ireland in terms of our mental health today, now in 2019?
2: Okay, well, um, the 2018 Health at a Glance report showed us that Ireland scores the third highest um, in relation to mental health across Europe. You know, so ahead of us would be Finland and the Netherlands. um, And we take third place along with France.
1: What what exactly does that mean? Does that mean we are the... Is there such a thing as being the best or the worst? What does it?
2: Well, it would mean that we would have some of the highest rates. Now, I suppose you can look at that from two points of view. Um, one is, at least we know that these people are presenting, so it's an indication then of help seeking behaviour. Um, or it could be argued that Ireland is, you know, way ahead in relation to mental health presentations. Um, but the fact is, across thirty six countries, we still have the highest, the third highest rate of mental health in Europe. So I think that's, you know, something that we really need to pay attention to.
1: It's a pretty incredible figure, given the size of the country.
2: Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I think certainly, I know if, you, if I'm being honest and somebody asked me 25 years ago what I thought of mental health, the first thing that would have come to my mind was mental ill health. Um, now, thankfully, you know, after 20 mm. years of therapy, when I when somebody asks me now around mental health, the first thing that comes to my head is positive mental health um, because we all have mental health. It's how we mind it. I think that's really important.
1: Funny, I was asked recently myself, how was my own mental health? And I thought it was a very bizarre question because I would immediately mm. respond and say, I think it's great. But yeah. I don't really know what I was being asked, if I'm to be yeah. truthful yeah. about that. And, and I yeah. think there's a kind of a just when you talk about that, there's probably maybe a little bit of a disconnect or a little bit of a misunderstanding um, among, oh, I think, quite a lot of people, myself included, as to what exactly we're talking about? Is it somebody's mental health or, as you say, is it their illness or is it ill health? Well, I think mental
2: health is around how we mind our mental health and it doesn't necessarily mean that we have mental ill health. And if we pay attention to our mental health, it can prevent us from becoming mentally unwell. You know, so I know certainly um, a lot of what we're seeing at the moment in in Athena, where we provide our counselling services, is young people in particular presenting with anxiety. Um, And I know... Myself and my colleagues for the other two directors in in Athena also were senior uh, clinicians in Pieta and Pieta provide wonderful services. But we were pretty much we felt constrained because what we were working with then was crisis. And we were able to identify that early intervention is the key around our mental ill health. You know, so rather to wait until somebody reaches the point where they have attempted suicide or experiencing thoughts of suicide or for a child, Mm. or even an adult, engaging in self-harm. So if we can get people and encourage that help-seeking behaviour at an earlier point in people's life, it can prevent them coming to a point
1: of crisis. It's interesting because in your own personal career down through the years, you were probably have always been dealing with people at that point where it is crisis intervention, yeah. and now it's there's, but there's been a massive, I think, societal shift and maybe a little bit more of an understanding and ex, and and an acceptance as well, around the more early um, intervention and preventative measures and coping mechanisms. I mean, even schools are focusing on 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 programs like these now to, yeah. to teach kids,
2: which is fantastic because we need to make sure that. You know, mental health is a subject that we're not afraid to speak about. And I do think that there has been great strides in this country in particular around mental health but the reality of it is there are still people who feel stigmatised and are not prepared to go to their employer um, if they're experiencing a mental health issue because they're afraid that they're going to be seen as maybe incompetent or not as capable as they once were. Now, thankfully, part of the work that we do is we engage with a lot of companies. Um, So in particular, I'm just thinking of this week because it's mental health week. Mm. Um, we've had calls from a lot of companies, particularly the construction industry, because we know that they have a particularly high rate of suicide. And they're bringing organisations like ourselves in to talk to people about their mental health, to talk about the protective factors, which is really important and how they can mind that mental health. So I think now there is a shift in attitude. A lot of organisations are doing this not as a, you know, just ticking a box exercise but they're really engaging in it. Um, so what we're doing is kind of like a very layman's terms of cognitive behaviour therapy in short presentations. So we're giving people the skills and the tools and the language to use around looking after their mental health and minding their mental mm. health.
1: It's funny you use the word language there. I'm very conscious even talking today about the kind of language that mm. I'm using mm. um, and and I don't know why that is or when when it became so conscious of the type of language we use but I think it's it's probably feeds into that idea of the um the misrepresentation that can often yeah. surround I think the topic of mental health.
2: Yeah and I think I know certainly from my point of view a bit like yourself Andre I would be very conscious of the language I use because for years, um, you know, for over 13 years, I worked in suicide prevention. So a lot of the time people would still use the word commit suicide. And yet we had lobbied really hard to have that mm. decriminalised in Ireland. So and I don't think the general public mean any you know, offence when they use that term. It's just something that we've grown up yeah. with. But in fairness, you know, we tend to associate the word commit with sin or with crime. Mm-hmm. So I would personally use the language of somebody completed suicide or somebody died by suicide or or somebody took their own life Um, again in in relation to self-harm. A lot of the time I've heard people been described by the behavior and being called self-harmers, you know, and I've children and I've grandchildren. Mm. And I really wouldn't like somebody to describe my family as self-harmers. You know, it's somebody who's engaging in a particular behavior because it's a, they're using it as a coping strategy for them at that time in their life um but certainly you know i still think there is a mindset that when we talk about mental health people associate it with mental ill health um, with the you know somebody who's severely mentally unwell um
1: well there is a very there's a huge disparity i suppose between and maybe spectrum isn't the right word but mm. on that range of as yeah. you say at one end you know when you're working career you have the suicide um, intervention yeah. element of it and then you have the kind of just very preventative coping coping mechanisms that are often being yeah. provided to people and there's that kind of you know there's that sort of a um, that line on the yeah. centre of the page and people are probably trying to decide well am I in the centre of that maybe some days I'm a little more to the right other days I'm more to the left like yeah. how do you what's your advice to people in terms of how they they, they decide where they themselves are or the kind of language they yeah. use to describe that
2: and you know it can be difficult for people because people are not you know, professionally trained in the area of, uh, you know, of psychotherapy. So it can be difficult. And sometimes people may feel completely overwhelmed if they're feeling anxious. Um, Certainly, I feel very much for parents. You know, we would have parents that are coming in and they're not sure if their child is at the point of crisis or not. But I think the key message is that when we notice problems, you know, we notice that maybe somebody's a little bit withdrawn. Somebody maybe is avoiding work or avoiding school or avoiding college. That's the point where we need to have the conversation and it's then that if we can get the intervention in at that point it will prevent people Mm. from ending up in crisis because I think there's a neglect a lot of the time particularly we see that with men um, by nature they're much more solution focused than women so they assume that they're going to be able to fix these problems on their own
1: it's interesting to hear you say that because I know from talking to um, parents previously in in, in various different types of interviews we do one of their concerns that they have is there's that fear that when you sit your child down to have this conversation with them that if you sort of if you're seen to kind of push them into doing a certain course in college or trying to entice them to go on and go down a specific route in terms of training or education or a job or whatever it is that there's a kind of an immediate defence that I, you know, I won't be told what to do and there's nothing wrong and I'm not going to do that. And and it's kind of finding that balance between the encouragement and the bringing them along. and
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's about um, trusting your instinct a lot of the time and choosing your moment, you know, because you might find I used to think having the kids in the car was a great way. You know, they, they weren't going to get out. <laughs> <laughs> You hope not anyway. <laughs> you hope not, yeah. Um, and, and even just where you are yourself that particular day, you know. Um, and I think I would have spoken about this before, mm. Andrea, here on this on this programme. You know, I remember there was a time when I was really concerned that my own son was suicidal. Um, and there I have all of this training. And I had a knot in my stomach. And every time I talk about it, I can even feel it now. The anxiety I felt, you know, with plucking up the courage to say to him, are you suicidal? Um, And yet I was sitting in a job where I was asking people at least five times a day, not only were they suicidal, but if they had a plan. Um, So I think for parents, there is this fear that we're going to plant the idea into somebody's head. You're not going to make somebody complete suicide if they haven't thought about suicide. Um, So I think we need to get over ourselves a little bit from that point of view. You know, and I remember waiting to choose my moment um, and I was just simply standing at the kitchen sink, peeling the spuds for the dinner. And was said to him, look, I'm really worried about you. And I, I have to ask you, are you suicidal? And of course, I got the, you know, the, he was about 18 at the time and had a relationship breakup. I wouldn't kill myself over her, you know. And, uh, and I said, well, that's, that's great. But, and I know I'm your mother and, you, you know, I'm probably the last person you want to speak about. But I can see that you're not yourself, you know. So I could see the behaviour withdrawn, not going out with friends, you know. So all of the signs were there. And here I am, a clinician who works in this business and I had anxiety around asking. But had I not asked and anything had have happened to him, I don't think I'd have ever forgiven myself. So it is about parents not being afraid to have the discussion, okay. but it is about choosing your moment as well and you're not going to barge in, you know.
1: Can I ask you for your advice, just, look, I suppose, drawn on your own your professional mm. experience and, and even now as well, Cindy, for partners. What should, should the partner do if... If they recognise or can see or identify that their other half, whether it be male or female, you know, is um, struggling with their mental health, having difficulties, just whatever the reasons are. But like even that conversation can can bring around its own difficulties. Oh,
2: absolutely. And it can be very overwhelming for for if you're living with somebody who you're concerned about, you know, because then that sometimes that can have an impact on the partner's mental health because they're unsure as to how best to respond. But I do think it is about using practical common sense, which I believe we have, um, choosing that moment and how you introduce the conversation. It might be something I noticed, you know, you're not yourself lately and that's your opening line Um, rather than because I know certainly in my work, a lot of what I hear, particularly with couples, um, when they confide in one another, instead of being listened to, they get advice. Um, and you know for some people that can yeah. be very irritating
1: and also the, the, there's, the, there's that sort of the grey area between what's advice and the lecture yes you know and <laughs> they're giving out and they've been told what you can't do and you know and all of a sudden it, it goes straight into a kind of a defence mode conversation
2: absolutely and you know if the signs are there and we see them there's nothing wrong with asking people how they are If I was very, very concerned about somebody, I would be as specific and ask them, you know, have you been thinking about suicide? But certainly I would be encouraging help seeking behaviour. And sometimes people are not always, um, you know, when you're in a crisis or when you're very, very upset, you're in the right hand side of your brain, which is the emotional side of your brain. So it's actually harder to access the rational part of your brain. So sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees. Um, You can't see any other solution. So I think certainly to to send somebody or to encourage somebody to come for counselling, it gives them the opportunity, first of all, to be listened to, mm. but to see and explore their situation from different perspectives.
1: Um, In terms of friends and the kind of the wider friend circle where they aren't in that situation where they're obviously in, in a partnership with the person they're concerned about and they're not living with them. What do you say to people who have friends who they're worried about, whether it be from you know, vast change in behaviour, something has happened, a bereavement, whatever it is. Mm. What? How do you speak, how do you advise, you know, one friend to speak to another friend yeah. where there isn't mm. that same, you know, that same partnership arrangement? Like,
2: that? Yeah. Well, again, I think we can say a huge amount with the correct tone. Um, you know, I often think you can almost get away with saying anything if your tone is, is correct and it's coming from a place of good intention. So... To say that to somebody, to be warm in your approach, to be empathic in your approach, you know, I've noticed lately that you're not yourself. You know, um, I'm concerned about you. You know, or how have you been feeling? But but to give them an opportunity to answer and to you know to respond to you, rather than saying you should do, because I genuinely believe um, a lot of the time we don't really listen to people, and people want to talk. So. If if you can equip yourself with knowing where they can go as well to get those supports, so is that you're helping somebody? Mm. I heard there's you know I heard there's Pieta, I heard there's Athena, I heard there's whatever organisation. No, I will is there. say
1: there's people that immediately Cindy will say and and with no disrespect, but the minute they hear there is the the advice is mm. I think you need to speak to somebody and you need to go to Cindy O'Connor or yeah. you know an organisation yeah. or a Pieta yeah. house. All of a sudden there is there's the their back is up yeah. and it's well, I'm fine and there's nothing actually wrong with me. And, you know, when people have that still, there's still that kind of a... But look at your
2: language, even when you say that, Andrea. I think you need to speak to somebody rather than have you considered speaking
1: to somebody. Okay, yeah. You know, so
2: again, just... The language is so important. It is so important because, again, if you say, I think they perceive that as advice. You're telling me. Yeah. Have you considered... You know, so yeah. you can explore you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can explore that with him because I know sometimes if somebody mm. said to me, I think you should do, my back might go up. Yeah. But rather oh, than absolutely, have yeah. you considered. You know, so you're entering into a process of
1: engagement. Oh, yeah, and there's all and there's also that who are you to tell me you don't know what I'm going through, attitude can kick in a bit too, like.
2: Absolutely. But I, I do think that even when you broach the subject, the person may not necessarily be be willing to hear it at that particular mm. point in time. And I know that was the case even with my son, but he was able to come back. So what he heard was, you know, I could see his distress. Um, It's a conversation that we can have and we can put something in place if that's what he chooses to do. So it is about creating the, you know, kind of seizing the opportunity Mm, when it presents because somebody may not be ready at that point to say, well, I think I do need to go and see somebody. But they know that you're able to listen and you're able to support them so they can come back and say, actually, you know, who do you think maybe I... Or do you have a number for somebody that it might help me?
1: Okay. When you've got the person um, engaged or on the path that they are maybe willing to speak to somebody or have a chat with yeah. them. I mean, can you do this without a medical referral?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, I suppose what we're seeing now um, is like people would decide... And even in leadership, I think the whole... And I'm delighted that the, the perception of therapy is changing because now... That you will have people who are very in very high positions in, in um, you know positions of leadership will engage in reflective practice. Now, actually, basically, it's it's pretty much the same as therapy because you have an opportunity to look at why you made the decisions, what influenced those mm. those decisions, your own anxiety maybe around making decisions or avoidance. So uh, we would see a lot of particularly it's great the young people like there's lots of young people on our books at the moment, and um, they pick up the phone. Not having a great time at the moment. It might mm-hmm. be experiencing in relationships and the uh, uh, difficulties, or a lot of the time there might be anxiety attached to exams, or you know, college or work in general. So we are seeing a shift in attitude that there's a help-seeking behaviour, but you don't need to have a GP referral.
1: No, to, this is very much something you can do yourself. This is
2: something that people can do ourselves, and you know, I know that I've been working with people in a private capacity that's on my books for probably ten years. And I might see some of them twice a year. And, you know, I don't go to the doctor every week. But if I need to go to the doctor, Mm. if I have a sore throat or a chest infection, I go, I might only go once or twice a year, but I check in. So we do have, you know, we're comfortable around looking after our physical health, but we're not so comfortable of checking in with our therapist. So I do think when you build that relationship, it's something that you can dip in and out of as and when required, uh, which is a great resource to us. Mm
1: -hmm. for people maybe that are listening to this, maybe Cindy today, that have a family member or a friend that maybe is, they're further down the pathway in terms of, of it's not now the initial conversation with a the therapist. Maybe they do need some kind of fairly immediate intervention or, you know, support services. That's obviously where we're, PA to house might come into yeah. it and I, and I assume even at that, yeah. even your local GP Absolutely, is a, is the a GP
2: is usually a very, very good place to start if you're seeing that and somebody has moved a little before bit further down the line. But I think what's unfortunate as well is that we do know that 40% of the children who present to CAMHS um, for assessment are not seen by CAMS because they're not far enough down the line. So what happens to that 40% of children? How do they access that early intervention? You know, and definitely, I would believe that that is the key to all of us. And um, rather than waiting for something to to fester and get out of control, if we can get the support in a timely fashion. So
1: ju- just to be clear, because pe- people will hear and we talk enough a lot in a kind of a news sense, you know, right uh, weekly often about CAMS, the, mm-hmm. the the child and adolescent mental yeah. mental health services. Yeah. Um, but but what you're saying is there is there is sort of a lack of resources available in that in, in that middle ground. So we yes. have the as you say, um. Whether it be public or private therapists, mm. people can go to. There's public and private. Whether it be your GP or mm. to House or other mm. services at maybe the more um, extreme or higher mm. end, but it's 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 the middle ground of support. And and why is why is that? Is it just is it a lack of available resources or?
2: I think certainly um, CAMs are really stretched. I think they're an excellent service. I think they do very very good work. But I do think they are stretched to capacity. Um, and when you have X amount of resources you have to prioritise which is completely understandable but what I'm saying is for the 40% of children who don't access that service following an assessment you know, what happens to them you know waiting lists can be very very high in a lot of places um, and that is a contributing pa- factor to things escalating if we don't get the, the, the engagement and the support that we need in a timely fashion
1: When you look just on your own professional experience, Cindy, and looking back at the the public supports that are available at the moment through CAMS and being provided by government and in terms of the budget and obviously that was this week as well. Like is it enough of a, is it enough of a priority on the list?
2: Well, I don't think there's no I don't think it's enough of a priority. Um because these are our children, this is our future. Um it's a basic human right to be able to access the the help and the support when we need I was just listening to uh Thomas McCann, he was addressing the Oireachtas there yesterday and he was talking about the rates of suicide and, and mental health mm. in the travelling community um, and how basically they they're, they're, their suffering is almost intolerable. But he was very honest and said for the last number of years, they feel that they have been ignored. Um, the rates are still extremely high. So there are still a lot of you know particular minority groups as well that are really struggling. Like you're seeing... There's been a significant rate in the rates of self-harm with the homeless population. You know, in 2017, we had 11,600 presentations of self-harm into hospitals in Ireland alone. Um, That involved over 9,000 people. So we would have a lot of people Mm -hmm. who have repeat acts of self-harm. But there's a significant increase in the homeless community. And I think in fairness, if you look at homeless situation now, um, you know, these are families who... A lot of them are working, um, have been in private rented accommodation. The rent goes up. They can't afford to pay. Mm-hmm. So it's not what we probably would have associated homeless with in the past. Um, but there are still a lot of people that are struggling um, across all sectors of life, I think.
1: Just finally, Cindy, the um, advice for individuals, for all of us, when somebody mm-hmm. asks you, how is your mental health? Is it good? What are you looking out for? What are the top? Well, of I think
2: it isn't. It's an opportunity when somebody asks you that question. It's, you know, you have an opportunity to scan your own mental health and to just slow down and think, you know, how am I? Because in Irish society, we all say, "ashram oh, sure, grand or, mm. you know, not a bother. And, and nobody really engages in that no. conversation. But it's an opportunity to scan what is going on for me. Um, you know, I know in the morning when I wake up, I hate getting out of bed. <laughs> I just tell do. me about it, <laughs> yeah. So I, when I wake up, I'm probably... On a scale of one to ten, with ten being the best, I feel I'm probably a two. Mm-hmm. But I know by the time I get washed and dressed and have a cup of tea, I'm a five. And um, by the time I'm, you know, I get into work, I'm probably hovering around an eight. But if I take a dip, I will say to myself, "What can I do now within the next twenty-four hours to take me up a notch on that on that scale?" So it might be something as simple as picking up the phone and speaking to my sister, um, or it might be getting off the couch in the evening. You know, bringing the dog, going for a walk. Mm. I don't know anyone who when they do go for a walk comes back feeling worse. Yeah,
1: no, I know. Yeah, for you sure. Know,
2: and social engagement is a protective factor for our mental health. I thought I was really impressed with um I was watching it's Britain's Got Ch- Talent, the champions. Right. On Sunday night and they decided to pause midway through the programme to get the UK talking. You know, so there was a real and that was a great opportunity because a lot of young people, well, I suppose people of all ages will mm. watch that program. But there was a real acknowledgement that we need to be paying attention to our mental health. We need to be talking to one another because there is great value in talking. Look at you here talking about this subject, (laughs) today? I've managed to make
1: a career out of it. (laughs) Good woman. (laughs) (laughs) Look, Cindy, I really appreciate your time today. It's been really insightful. And I think for for a lot of people, and myself included, there's a lot you can take from that. And of course, as I said, this is all part of Mental Health Week, which has been discussed here on the station as well throughout the course of the week. Uh, we will be continuing our conversation in just a few moments, but for the moment, my thanks to Cindy O'Connor, who's the Director of Athena at the Academy for Mental Health and Wellbeing. My thanks to you for your time today.
2: Thanks so much, Andrea. Thanks a million. Between the Lines
1: on Talk. Well, joining us now is uh, Shari McDade, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Mental Health Reform. Shari, thanks very much for taking the call today. Can I just ask you, first of all, will you just explain, Shari, what it is that the mental health reform actually do?
3: Yeah, well, we are the national coalition advocating for better mental health services for everybody. So we are a a whole bunch of NGOs that have gotten together in Ireland to campaign and advise government on how they can make mental health services work better for people.
1: And it's a government funded organisation, is that correct?
3: We have some funding from the the government, but uh, we also have funding from private philanthropy and from individuals who support our work. Particularly our advocacy work is supported by individuals and private philanthropy.
1: Okay. Just in the context of the week that was, obviously earlier this week, we had the publication of um, the budget, the budget for 2020. And uh, obviously mm-hmm. as part of that, I assume the me- mental health budget will come under the uh, the umbrella of the overall health spend how did the mental health reform or how did mental health as, a, as an area actually fare out?
3: Well, I say we, we are very disappointed in what came out in the budget uh, and, w- and what we have had confirmed by a meeting with uh, Minister Daly, the Minister for Mental Health uh, this week, is that there's really only 13 million euro that has been allocated for new developments in mental health for, for, for increasing the capacity in mental health services, and that's going only towards our forensic mental health services, which are the mental health services for people who have uh, been associated with the criminal justice system. So, in fact, for the vast swathe of people who might need uh, mental health support, there's actually no new money next year for uh, increases in in, uh, staff to be available to respond to people's needs. And we're very concerned about that. You know, we we feel that there are obvious gaps in the services. We don't have adequate services outside of office hours. We have uh, two and a half thousand children still wait on a waiting list to see specialist mental health support. And yet, uh, it doesn't seem to have been made a priority in this budget. Mm-hmm. And that is deeply concerning.
1: It's interesting, Shari, that we we spoke to Cindy O'Connor um, earlier in the programme today, who had obviously previously worked with the organisation Pieta House. And we were talking about the various different types of um, interve- interventions or various different types of support networks that are there and currently available to people. One of which I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have heard of is camps. Um, being the child and adolescent mental health service that a lot of young people would would um would avail of would would try to access. Mm. So, are you saying mm. that this investment in the mental health area is part of budget twenty twenty? Are you saying there's going to be no further supports available in that CAMS uh, service? Is that correct?
3: That is our understanding that there's actually no money in the budget for next year identified for increasing the staffing of and mental health services, and we know how much these services are under strain. We know that they still only have a little over half of the staff that they actually need. Uh, we know that there are still services where uh, they they aren't able to operate the full service on that basis, uh, and so it, it is um, disappointing that really... Um, People are going to be in the same position next year that they are in this year in terms of trying to access uh, that specialist mental health support. Now, it's important to acknowledge that that CAMS is really for a small proportion of children uh, and adolescents who might have very complex issues that need help. But of course, it's not going to—you know—it's much better for them to get the help quickly than to have to wait for weeks and months without being able to access that support. And of course, it puts huge strain on the families of those children as well to try and Uh, provide and manage the situation in the absence of that uh, specialist Mm -hmm. mental health. Look, uh, we should just say just
1: by by way of context for people that probably in around the last maybe six or seven years or so that very specifically the mental health budget um, by way of government, if the minister was here, he'd say there has already been an increase of nearly the guts of somewhere in the region of around 40% um, to nearly 1 billion over the past number of years. Your criticism though was that there isn't any further allocation this year specifically to the day-to-day interventions, that it's it's sort of
3: yeah earmarked I mean, for one area? A couple, there's a couple of ways of looking at it, I and mean, it's very convenient to start from 2012 and say there's been a substantial increase but of course during the recession there was a substantial decrease (laughs) so uh you know so i look at it in terms of how many staff have we got on the ground to be able to provide people with care and in fact we're still only about at the same level of staff as we were in 2008 despite a really huge increase in demand Mm -hmm. for mental health services particularly child and adolescent mental health services so It might look like there's been a big increase, but actually that has just all this time been making up ground that was lost during the recession. Can
1: you explain, Uh, Shari, what sort of intervention or resource do you think is actually required? Like without being too wildly ambitious, you know, in, in, in the context of the budget available, what is the most necessary or urgent resource that you need?
3: Well, clearly we need um, we need specialist mental. I mean, if you're asking me about uh, what kind of staff we need on the ground, mm-hmm. we need staff from the whole spectrum, from uh, early intervention, from uh, being able to see someone through your GP quickly and promptly and and appropriately, so that say for children and adolescents, when they go to their GP, um, there is psychology service available to them. There's appropriate uh, allied supports to that, speech and language, occupational therapy, to ensure, uh, and psychiatry as needed. You know, But in primary care, that people have access to those um, lower-level supports uh, that would keep... Things from getting worse. Mm-hmm. For well, when a you child talk about and it. Help them to recover promptly. Sorry. Yeah. And then, then, of course, if a child has a more complex issue, if they're um, experiencing a severe depression, which sadly is possible for children and adolescents these days, uh, if, if they are experiencing, you know, they have a disability on top of a mental health issue and they need a really uh, complex set of support. That they can get that kind of support by having adequate uh, specialist medical care and speech and language therapy and psychology and OT all working together uh, to give them the sustained support that they need over time.
1: Yeah, Can I just, Shari, just get you to clarify for me, because I think probably a lot of people are, are aware of what are the interim or the medium level interventions and certainly at the higher end. But when you talk about that early intervention and getting the appointment with the appropriate um, respective person, what is early intervention?
3: So early intervention would be where uh, an individual or uh, a child with their family might be presenting with um, anxiety, uh, low mood, um, uh, panic, um, difficulties with concentrating in school, um, things like that. Maybe they're not sleeping well. Maybe they're they're not going out as much, or not relating to friends as much as they they used to, and it hasn't gotten to the point where it's uh, really consistent, persistent over you know a number of months. It's just developing, and in that situation, it's very possible to intervene quickly. Uh, and if you, you don't necessarily in that situation need to see a psychiatrist, for instance, it may be. That a psychologist working with the individual who's having those experiences or together with the family can help to resolve the situation relatively quickly. Can give that person themselves, that child, that adolescent, that adult, the tools that they need, the guidance, uh, so that they can get over that hump that might be a relatively short-term hump and get back into feeling you know, that they can cope with life. Uh, And that kind of thing is so much more cost effective uh, than waiting until something is very entrenched, very uh, severe, and then trying to help the person. Uh, Um, So that's why we encourage people to reach out and ask for help quickly, but the supports have to be in place. No good encouraging people to talk and seek out help if the help isn't there. And, while it, 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 it's there in bits across the system, it doesn't have the adequate capacity so that people can get that help quickly enough.
1: And that's specifically, I suppose, too, with regards to children. But for people that are maybe listening to this today, Shari, as well, that are adults and maybe have maybe never gone and spoken to anybody before or sought any kind of support or services. Are these kind of supports there for people?
3: So so I would encourage anybody who, you know, is feeling a bit low, a bit anxious or not sure to reach out and contact somebody and they can, uh, it's really good for them to share that with their GP and their GP can try and refer them to the supports that are available. We have a free counseling service in Ireland for anyone who's on a medical card called the Counseling and Primary Care Service. And any GP in Ireland can refer somebody to that service. Sometimes there is a short waiting time. Uh, There there are some people who have had to, to wait over six months, and that's what we're frustrated about in terms of the capacity of that service. But it is available for anyone who has a medical card, and they can go along to their GP and say, "I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just not mm-hmm. feeling myself. I'm, I'm feeling okay. I'm not able to cope." And the GP can re- can refer them into that service. And I would definitely encourage anyone. You don't have to feel like you have a mental health condition. It just could be that you feel like you're not really coping very well, or, you know, that you've been feeling a bit down for a while. And it doesn't seem to be lifting on its own and you Sometimes might have a little bit of, of help.
1: Sometimes you just want to talk to somebody. Indeed. Shari McDade, the CEO of Mental Health Reform. My thanks to you for joining us on the programme today.
0: Between the Lines on Talk.
1: Well, joining us now is Dr. Mike Watts, who's an independent recovery consultant and also the former National Programme Coordinator mm-hmm. with GROW. Mike, just first of all, what is GROW?
0: Um, Grow is a peer support uh, movement. It's the largest mutual help organization in Ireland. We have a network of about 120 groups and we're very much um, supported by the HSE. Um, it started in Australia in 1957 when people with mental health difficulties found themselves back in community with very little support. So um, some of them gravitated towards Alcoholics Anonymous which had a 12-step programme and they got permission from AA to um, to start their own 12-step programme to look at how could they help each other um, recover from mental illness or make sure that they didn't become ill again.
1: And in terms of what it is that GROW does, I mean, it's a support service effectively, is it, rather than a treatment programme?
0: It, yeah, it, it, it's not therapy it's a weekly meeting that you attend it's different to aa and that you you just join one group and you get to know the other people in the group and the way it works it's a very very a very clever organization um we have a very strict agenda so that each part of the meeting is timed so that it can't go off on tangents and it's led by a different person every week so that you you immediately get the idea that you're not just somebody with problems, but that you're somebody whose experience can be helpful to others. Mm -hmm. And somebody will tell their story at the meeting, their story of how they became ill and how they've recovered, what helped. And then um, everybody at the meeting sets themselves a goal for the week. So if you're really depressed, your goal will be just to get out of bed. And if you go back to bed, fine, but at least you've made the effort. And then you come back the next week and you get huge encouragement for the effort that you've made or it could be if you're if you're stuck terribly afraid you start by looking out of the window if you're afraid of going out or you m- might meet a friend walk to the to the garden gate and back and again it's the encouragement that you get from the other people and very very slowly you you begin to form your own individual recovery plan. And the group will also help you to look at society and say, well, what might be helpful to me? And, um, you know, would, would music be good for me? Would join in a choir? Is employment what I need? Do I need to have help with abuse? Was I abused as a child and where can I go? So we have a good relationship with the Rape Crisis Centre. Or do I need counselling? Can I ask my psychiatrist to refer me on to a counsellor? Or are the courses in new recovery mm-hmm. colleges. So it's very much looking at the person, what are their needs, what are their strengths, and where in society can they find little niches that would be okay. very very helpful.
1: And presumably, um, Mike, is it open to all ages, all genders?
0: It's, it's open to anybody over 18. There are complications if you're under 18. At the moment, we're looking at... Um, uh, trying to develop a schools program, but it's open to anybody from 18 to 120.
1: Okay. And what's been the success
0: rate? Oh, it's fantastic. I, I did um, a piece of research in Trinity College on uh, 26 members of Grow, And um, 10 of them had had what you'd call lifelong diagnosis, schizophrenia or bipolar. And um, a number of those people, not all, but a number of them, we're now completely medication free. We don't. We're not advocating. We're not against medication. It can be very, very helpful. But some people find they can grow out of it. I have myself, and so has my wife. And I know lots of people. So the success rate, if you stay with growth, there's quite a lot of international research that shows that it's extremely, extremely effective.
1: Can I ask you um, about the the kind of, if you like, life? Coping skills or mechanisms that people are provided with when they're at the meetings. If there's people listening, Mike, today that maybe look they they perhaps want to go along, but for whatever reason, there's there's some reason that they're not going along to, to meetings like like what what you do at Grow. But what kind yeah. of advice would you give to people?
0: Well, I would take your courage in your hands and go. And it, it's very difficult to go to your first meeting because you, you 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 kind of instinctively don't trust people when you when you're really down and out. But what you get in the meeting, we have a little book that's been put together. It's called a Practical Psychology of Mental Health. And it's, it's in, 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 in the HSE now, they're just beginning to talk about positive psychology, which is how do you make people happy? How do you achieve mental health? Up to now, it's been mainly focused on why do people break down? But GROW has this wonderful written program with strategies for living. So there, there are pieces aimed at coping with anxiety coping with depression coping with thought disorders coping with the relationships and and you 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 begin to explore that that written program and put it into practice and it really really works
1: and like when you talk about these these actual coping mechanisms cuz we've spent a good part of the program today Mike talking about i suppose that different um stage if you like or spectrum that that people feel, you know, it's sometimes going it to be difficult for people to kind of understand. Myself included, where am I on in terms of dealing with my mental health and under actually understanding it and and what it's about? Mm-hmm. Like, is there a certain stage at which people should start to look at lifelong coping mechanisms, or is that something that you just mm-hmm. sort of intuitively have?
0: It's it's a really interesting question. There's no prescription that can be applied to everybody. You have to do. We say in grow mental health is. It's taught, it's learned together. So each one of us is very different. And it's only as you become, you get to know the other members of the group and they get to know you that you begin to discover the way forward. But we all have mental health needs. In, in Grow, we say the dividing line between mental health and mental illness, it doesn't divide society into groups that are mentally ill and meet people who aren't. It goes down the heart of everyone. And it, it's the same with uh, sound drug use. You know, I, I I live on black coffee, which is which is a, a type of drug, and it's not it's not healthy, but it's not it's not as as bad as as other drugs. But you know, we're all we are all on a spectrum, but we all need to discover how to maintain our mental health, and it's becoming increasingly important because we're living in a world that is we're kind of bombarded with anxiety the whole time, anxiety about climate change, anxiety about um, Online things, not being able to talk to somebody real. I mean, I I I'm trying to get reclaim money for a cancelled flight because I had an eye operation, and it's just it's just a, a total um, nightmare trying to find somebody you can talk to. So life is becoming increasingly difficult and challenging and everybody needs to work on their mental health same as you do your physical health yeah
1: absolutely can i just ask you mike like in, in your own kind of professional experience and the various different elements of this that you've worked in um in your career what more do you think could be done at like a local level by way of whether it's through improvements or changes in public policy what more kind of services could be provided to members of the public
0: well, they're beginning, there's this program called ARI, Advancing Recovery in Ireland and Mental Health Engagement, which have been established by the HSE, and they're employing people who've had experience of mental illness and who have recovered. So they're beginning to value um, people's lived experience. And um, the Recovery College in Kilkenny is absolutely brilliant. And um, I run a, a narrative workshop, which is open to everybody. And uh, we we try and get um, professionals, relatives, and people suffering from mental illness come in and just look at their stories, their life stories, the identities that they've had. How do you shed unwanted identities like a person who's been bullied, a person who's been abused? And how do you build on the positive identities like a good friend, a leader, a capable person, um, somebody people love to meet? And um, we, we do that. We, we, we've done it in the five counties and we've had up to 30 people at those meetings and the, the kind of the energy that comes out of them is quite incredible. So I, th- I think, and then I was in UL. There's a course there for music therapy. I think all these things that are alternatives. They all play uh, a role. They do. They're, okay. they're fantastic. And, yeah. um, my, my, my research into how peer support works came to the conclusion that if you get the right help, Um, A mental health difficulty can be a turning point. And the the main theme that came out from from my research was that recovery could be a re-enchantment with life. And that's how people experience. They suddenly become delighted with themselves. It sounds mad, but it's actually true. If you take it steady and you do the work, you suddenly begin to realize that you're a very good person. You have huge um, talents and strengths and that there is a very fulfilling role for you in society. Dr.
1: Mike Watts, Independent Recovery Consultant and former National Programme Coordinator with GROW. My thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. If you've missed any of the programme, you can listen back to it on the GoLight app or in newstalk.com. My thanks to the production team, Elaine Power and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday from 6am and also with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day.